Morning, everyone. Let's get going here today. How you doing today? All right. All right. Good. Good to see you. Welcome back to Revelation in Context. It feels like it has been a month since we've been together. And then I paused and thought, and that's because it's been a month since we've been together. Uh, this is our first time back since, I believe, December 18th. And where we find ourselves today is at Revelation chapter 8. For those of you who might be new to this or even just for a sense of review, what we're doing is we're going through the last book of the Bible written by the last apostle, living apostle of Jesus when it was written, a, a man named John. And it's a, uh, it, it's a strange combination of uh, vision combined with literary guerrilla assault on his culture in his day, particularly the Roman Empire, written to Christians who are in the face of an anti-Christian culture trying to figure out a, a couple of things. One, how not to get enticed and succumb to those cultural forces and worldviews, and simultaneously how to hold up under the pressure and even persecution that's coming from that culture and those worldviews, namely the Roman imperial system. And so we pick up at Revelation chapter 8 today, and the goal of this time together, not only today but going through all of it, is not to try to unpack every single detail in the book of Revelation. A, I don't think there would simply be enough time for that. B, I'm not sure it's the most fruitful way to read the book. Instead, what I want to do is help you see the forest more than the trees. What are the major moves going on? How do I understand the flow of things here? What is the fundamental message coming out and what is the imagery doing to support that message? And if we can do that together today and you walk away enriched seeing how much this applies to the 21st century, even though it's written to people in the first century, that's a huge win. So why don't we pray today? We'll jump in and see where God has to take us in Revelation chapter 8, all right? Lord in heaven, we come before you. And even now as we speak here on earth, we know that the saints are in heaven, surrounding the throne. The angels are in heaven, surrounding the throne. The elders are in heaven, surrounding the throne. The living creatures are in heaven, surrounding the throne. And all kinds of strange creatures that we meet in this book, we get glimpses of surrounding your throne, praising your name day and night. Holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, Lord Jesus, Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. May our life here on earth reflect that glory. May it reflect that worship. May it reflect that praise. I pray that you help us, God. As we face seductions, temptations, and enticements in our world today, things that feel natural, things that we're surrounded with, but God, that you are calling us out of to be different from. Lord, help us today when we find ourselves feeling pressured, persecuted, threatened. And we pray especially for those around the world for whom this is ratcheted up to even greater degrees, that we'd be faithful in our witness, not just in our words, but with our lives, that you would give us what we need, the strength to stand and knowing that with you, Lord, a crown of life. Help us in this. 
open this vision before our eyes. Move us by it, God. Do your work, we pray. Together we say, amen. Here's what I'd like you to do. Would you agree that Revelation has been weird up to this point? Okay, take a little number two. Put it down into a superscript font. Put it next to the word weird, and that's where we're going in chapter eight and nine. Um, if it's been weird so far, it is going to a next level of weird. And this is, I think, going to be the most helpful way to navigate this. Read chapter eight and nine on your own right now. Take about five minutes. Don't try to capture every detail. Just try to get a sense of the emotional impact, the flow. Um, see what questions it raises. Familiarize yourself with the landscape, and then we'll see if we can kind of cut a path through it. And um, if you need a Bible, you'll find them under your chairs. If you don't like to read print, I will harp on this every time. Download version. All right, away we go. Finish it up if you need to, but I'm going to start speaking into it now. Weird stuff. Would you agree? Great bedtime reading for your kids or grandkids. Would you agree? I'd highly encourage that grandma and grandpa, if mom and dad ever make the mistake of dumping their two-year-old on you or their four-year-old on you because they want a night out, heaven forbid, just, just torment them and read them something like this so that they're up for the next eight weeks of their life sleeping in mom and dad's bed. They'll, they'll appreciate that and, uh, and, and, and teaching the word of the Lord to your your grandkids is important. So um, just, just a side recommendation there. No, it's, it's kind of, it's, 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 it's horrific. It's crazy. It's, 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 it's a kind of a combination, would you agree, of like, I mean, at one hand, it's like the imagery itself is just kind of crazy in its own right. Like, what do I even make of this? It's just weird. But then when you start trying to make anything of it, the other side is just like, I don't, I don't want to make anything of this. It's just, it's, it's, it's horrible. It, it's, it's terrible. It's, it's fearful. And if you allow yourself some of that mental space to, to think about it, not just theoretically, but personally, practically, and seriously, it can actually be very terrifying. And if, if that is the case, as lame as this encouragement sounds right now, just take heart in the fact that you are not the first Christian to be terrified by the book of Revelation. What I want to do is paint the picture together Let's see how much we remember and let's just try to uh, be directors or screenwriters and put together what we've seen and then try to extract what we're meant to feel, the impression it's trying to make, the sense of flow that it has in the storyline. So let's start with what we've seen. Try to do this now from memory. Okay, I'd encourage you, don't look, just trust the impressions that it made on you on a first read. What did you see? Tell me what you saw. An angel coming, like an introduction what's coming. Okay. Taking, taking the prayer off, the embers from the incense, burning. Yeah, yeah, go with it. So we get this introductory scene where this angel, imagine we've seen angels already in Revelation. We're not thinking cherubs and diapers. We're thinking, you know, this mighty creature before the throne room of God coming up, making this proclamation, doing something, making a command, doing a decree. I don't know. But he takes this, this smoke, these embers, the censer, and he hurls it down on earth. That seems to be what unleashes 
everything. So this is what's occurring. This is what's getting thrown down from heaven onto earth. What happens? What do we see? There's a lot of destruction. What's that destruction look like? We see meteors. What what do we see? Keep going. Poisoning of water. What else do you see? Volcanoes. All right. Doesn't say volcano, but it's like the sense you get, right? A fire and eruption and the earth shaking and, 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 and rocks exploding and mountains quaking, right? What else do you see? You see water turning to blood and you see locusts. We have this weird demon horde of locusts where they're described with like long hair like women and, and tails like scorpions and, and they're just like kind of unleashed from the abyss, right? And, and smoke is coming up. It, it, I mean, it's like, oh, what do you do with that? What else do you see? Earthquakes, Earthquakes okay? The earth is shaking. What else do we see? Whoever doesn't die almost wishes they died. Whoever probably almost wishes that they've died. Not everyone is killed on earth by this. It keeps coming up with a third, in fact, I think, which, which is quite a lot of people, would you agree? But those who survive it, while it doesn't say it explicitly, you really get the sense that I think I would rather die in this than survive this. What else do you see? A time component? A time component. What was the time component? Did it strike you? Do you remember? Strange things like a half an hour. It starts with like a half an hour where it goes silent in heaven before this whole thing is unleashed. What, what do we do with that? That's interesting. But think about it as a director making a movie. One of the most powerful things you can do in a movie is not the biggest explosion, not the biggest car chase, not the most noise and action, but pulling back from all of that and just going silent with nothing but a thud or a hum. Or a blank. Have you ever watched movies like that where they, they, they do that technique? Silence can almost be more terrifying than the commotion. Anything else? The five of, uh, yeah, five months of torment. It lists five months. We've got a, another time component there. What else? Anything else? And I'm not trying to extract anything in particular, just saying what sticks on you. Yeah. Doesn't seem like God is directly involved. Um, certainly there feels like maybe a supernatural component, but he's letting everything go back into chaos of sorts. That's the sense you're getting. Okay, I get that. I get that. Yeah, Mike. Yeah. Yeah, be on count. Yeah. yeah, you got it. You got it, Adrian. Yeah. Yeah, we got this eagle flying around in the midst of that, which is kind of weird. Woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. And I always like to point out it's not a Keanu Reeves woe, like whoa. You know, it's like you don't want the word woe coming your way in the Bible. Kelly. So let's think about the mechanism then. Yeah, because this didn't get mentioned yet. There's a certain mechanism or, or, or sequential flow, can, can you say, in the storyline. Something that is changing the scene. What changes every scene? What happens? A trumpet is sounded. The whole thing revolves around 
trumpets. And how many trumpets? Seven, which should, of course, start invoking Revelation imagery to us. And how are the trumpets divided? Because it's not just one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. They seem to be divided into two units. What are the two units? Four and three. And if you're on your game and you remember this, you remember there was seven of something else that preceded the seven trumpets, seven other plot devices, if you will, that kept it moving forward. It wasn't seven trumpets, but do you remember seven seven seals? And every time a seal was opened, something would happen. Now every time a trumpet is sounded, something will happen. And just like the trumpets divided into four and three, you might remember that the seals were divided into four and three as well. So we're seeing a recurring pattern here. We've shifted from seals, and again, not sea lions, but like, you know, letter seals. We shifted from seals being ripped open on that scroll to now trumpets being sounded, but it's following in the same pattern of seven and after every one something occurs and it's divided into a four by three pattern and just when you don't think it can get any worse after the first four are done, someone warns you of what yet to come because you think, man, how can it get worse? Maybe the worst is behind me. Oh no, we've got an eagle to tell us the worst is not behind you and then it introduces another exponent in terms of what it produces. So we got a sense, we've got a feel, but I think the million dollar question is what the heck is going on? Agreed? It's horrific in its own right, but maybe the question that you're asking today is simply something like this. Is this something that's gonna happen? Uh, is this going to come at some future date? And if it is, should I be living in fear of this? Or what does this mean for me? Is this something I have to endure? Is it time to start building the bunker and hoarding canned food? Uh, I, I, like, like, how do I navigate it? Or if it's not meant to be looked at that way, what am I supposed to glean from this imagery? What is this imagery representing? What is it describing that's going on? And, is, and if it is imagery-based, is it something that is going to happen or is it something that actually is occurring now? And again, whenever I say now, I always start from the first century AD, not 2023 AD. So these are kind of the big interpretive questions to help make sense of, like, like, what does God want me to get out of this book? Like, why is this in here, not just as a private letter to these seven churches back then, but to me here in 2023 today and believers in every time and every place? Now, I've been, yeah, Marilyn. Yeah. Where all of this is going, if you don't repent, this is what's going to happen, whichever time frame it's in. If you didn't see, uh, if you didn't hear what Marilyn said, it's something that went unmentioned at the very end of chapter nine. It starts to hint at something. And it doesn't really come out directly and say it, but if you read between the lines a little bit, you start to get a sense of maybe where this is going. And it talks about how despite all of these things, 
people still did not repent, which seems to beg the question a little bit that there may be an intention within this to to shake people to repentance before what is clearly the judgment of God, whether even if not directly by his hand, certainly by his kingdom and orchestration, if you will. Now, I've been making the case since the very beginning of this this course, for lack of a better term, Revelation in Context, that one, this is not a blueprint of future events. That the message we're reading is meant to be something that is occurring in the time of 92 AD. It is a here and now. And there certainly is by extension a here and now to all of us. But the imagery being used is imagery that is extracting or drawing on the culture of those seven churches in Western Turkey back in arguably 92 AD. So we're seeing two things. We're not looking at something occurring in the future. We're looking at something that's kind of already in its mechanisms and orchestrations 92 AD today. And there's going to be a lot of figurative, symbolic language to help us understand what we actually are facing literally, but by doing it through a figurative mechanism, we understand it and the significance of it in a different kind of way. So far, so good. All right, let's pace through it now and pick up the storyline. And what I hope is that the major moves take a certain sense of focus and make sense. Keeping the storyline of Revelation straight is vital. But remember, it is not a chronological storyline. It's a series of loops. We're going around again and again through the same storyline, but each time it's being retold, we're getting it from a different perspective. Which means, and this is not a pet theory of mine, it's a majority opinion, but which means that what we're reading in the seven trumpets is actually repeating from a different perspective, what we already read in the seven seals. And what we read in the seven seals is basically a picture of what the believers were facing in 92 AD and what all believers are facing between Christ's ascension into heaven and his return from heaven to judge the living and the dead. So what we call the church age right now, right? We're between Christ's two comings, right? So this is to us too. What we are, just, what we are seeing and, and, and hearing is what's going on right now, but of course right now is using their imagery from 92 AD. And the number seven is a device used by John to bring us back around the loop again. Oh, here we go, it's number seven again. Let's go through another sevenfold cycle. The seven seals is being repeated by the seven trumpets, okay? Now, Let's go another step. What we see in the letter called Revelation is that it is a letter to seven churches who are enduring this bifold pressure from the Roman Empire and their culture. And that pressure is to succumb. And the reason they're being tempted to succumb is either because they're being tormented, persecuted, and pressured, and threatened, the negative side, or because, darn it, it looks pretty good. It looks easier. It looks advantageous. And they're being enticed into and allured into a way of life that seems so normal to everyone and so good 
to everyone around them. Does that sound familiar? I think Christians in any culture and any time and place, certainly notwithstanding 2023 United States culture, can say the same thing. It is hard to be Christian in the world because when you are a Christian, you are fundamentally different. God has created something different you. He has resurrected you. He has born you again, if you will. And you are in some way because of the spirit of God different than other people. It's just inevitable. There's no getting around. It doesn't make you better than them. It doesn't make you superior to them. It doesn't mean God loves you more than them. But because you have the spirit of God alive in your life and because God has awakened your, 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 your soul, you're just different. You're going to see things differently. You're going to value things differently. You're going to commit to different levels of things. And that is inevitably going to put you at odds with the world, society, and people in society around you. I'm not saying anything you don't know. I'm not saying anything that isn't like Christian 101. Am I? And when that happens, it usually comes across in two ways. Either you feel coerced, pressured, threatened, or persecuted, right? When you come into conflict with culture, or you feel enticed, allured, wanting to compromise, um, wanting to take that path, wanting to conform, wanting to make your belief system form to that belief system. It, it, it's the same for these guys back then. And we have the letter of Revelation start with seven specific letters to different believers facing that in different ways. Some are just getting the snot kicked out of them. They're getting their teeth ground into the ground. And they're, they're just trying to figure out how to hold up under it. And Christ comes to them with encouragement to hang in there, to persevere, to endure, to overcome, to conquer, to not be crushed by the weight of this. You see other of those seven churches, and you go back and read them. We've seen this. Who think that they're successful, who think that everything is going right, who think that they're blessed because they're not facing that kind of persecution. But Christ comes to him and goes, you think you're alive, but you're dead. You think you're rich, but you're poor. You've sold out. So repent. Turn. Remember your first love. He uses all different kinds of language. Remember that? And I think every single believer finds themselves in both of those places. Do you? Do you feel at times like you're here and at times like you're here? And so we need both messages. And this is the message to believers and to these believers. So the storyline goes is that after we see the risen Christ and all of his glory, we see him on the throne. And we see from the throne room of God in chapter 4 and 5 that God is in control of everything. But we see something significant. And these reoccurring ideas are going to come out. And you saw it here again in Revelation 8. We see in the throne room of God those who have died and now are with Christ in heaven crying out on behalf of their brothers and sisters on earth, How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? How long, O Lord, until you mete out justice? How long, O Lord, until you avenge us? How long, O Lord, until you come down and right the wrongs? Because there's a lot of next level wrongs happening here on earth. 
And in the seals, we see God respond to it. We see him unleash his horsemen. And then we go through the cycle of how God's judgment or answer to these prayers is being poured out by him allowing people to punish themselves, if you will, economically, with violence, through pestilence and disease, through all these kinds of ways that humanity is in many ways complicit with or guilty of propagating. And it ends at the end of Revelation chapter 7 with the picture of heaven, 6 and 7, where we see the day of the Lord finally come, judgment day has come, and those who are brought out and numbered among God's chosen ones, and it gives the number 144,000. Within that, we also talked about how it has a dual meaning. It resembles a census, especially as you'd see in things like the book of Numbers. And a census is commonly taken by a kingdom or by a nation to assess that nation's strength, specifically to assess its military strength. We are numbered so that we know how many troops we have, so that as Jesus says, when a king goes off into battle, he doesn't just march off. The first thing he does is he counts up their numbers and he counts his own numbers to see if he has any ability to stand, right? It's practical human wisdom. So we see a lot of military language that's being built into this. Now, in Revelation chapter 8, it seems to change focuses a little bit, and it seems to be very natural. And when I say natural, I don't mean supernatural. But even the way that we talked about the judgment of God, it's using things like, you said volcanoes, it's using earthquakes, it's using fire, it's using meteors. Well, these are naturally occurring things. But when they happen kind of on a catastrophic scale, don't we always kind of feel like, hmm. You know, the hand of God since the beginning of time. If lightning strikes, people think God's sending it down. To this day, I hear people go, I can't step foot in a church because lightning will strike me. Meaning, God will strike me down. Which, of course, isn't true and so distorted in thinking, but the point is the language. Are you with me so far? Now, some of you, when we were describing the images, you mentioned things, and I don't know if it was intentional or not, but you used language, not even from Revelation, but you used language from Exodus. Stu, back here, I think mentioned that the water turned to blood. Now, I don't know, does it, did it actually say that the water turned to blood in Revelation 8? It turned bitter. Did it say it turned to blood? It, it did? It did? Eight eight. Let's read it. In my eyes, I can't focus anymore. So. Yeah. So like I'm using NIV, and it doesn't say blood. There. Did, I, did my eye skip? And that that is possible. I'm noticing that happens more and more in my life. Um, but I, so I'm asking literally for correction. Did it say blood? And in which version? It is. Where? Like, why can't I see this? Yeah, great. Yeah. Yeah, there it is. C turned into blood. Just, I'm just jumping lines. All right, all right. Which, again, 
Yeah, exactly. Ain't that the truth? Which, I mean, it's, it's like direct allusion to the first plague of Egypt. You guys remember the Egyptian plagues? At least, I don't I mean, can you order them? But I mean, you remember like the story or the event? The locusts, what do we see? Locusts. Darkness, what do we see? Darkness. You, you know, all of these events, not, not all of them, it's not trying, but you can see the, the literary material that it's drawing on. And that's not really uncommon in Jewish literature. It's not uncommon in the Bible. It's not uncommon in the extra uh, biblical Jewish literature. It's, it's very archetypal what happened in Egypt. Now, a lot of what people miss when they read the Exodus story is something very significant about how God postures himself, defines himself, and what he's doing. Because we read it as a, a, a freedom from slavery story. And it is a freedom from slavery story. But how does God posture him in this freedom from slavery, from story? And the way he postures himself is as a warrior. When they come through the Red Sea, you can read this in Exodus chapter 15, and it's all done. Their hymn is, Yahweh is a warrior, Yahweh is his name. I love that verse. The entire thing is postured as God waging war on Egypt. And more significantly, and it even says this, God waging war on the Egyptian gods. So it's fascinating that when you read the Exodus story and the plague story in the context of Egyptian culture, many of the plagues are things the Egyptians sought their deities hand in and feared their deities in. And many of the Egyptian gods even corresponded in names with the, like, the plague that was happening. And what you see is God showing up, showing the superpower of its day and the supernatural superpower Egypt of its day going, Yahweh's here and you ain't got nothing on me. God is going to war. Well, let's expect Revelation to do something similar. Except we're not going to war against Egypt this time. We are going to war against a different superpower named and its gods and its beliefs and its cultural worldview. Now, I was a trumpet player. My son is a trumpet player. We're actually at his college yesterday watching him playing pep band in trumpet. Kind of fun. When I think of a trumpet, I think of concert band, marching band, jazz musician, solos. I think of it as something that's entertaining. But for much of human history, and I mean up until the invention of radio technology, that was not the use of trumpets, not primarily. For much of human history, Trumpets are used to get your attention because they're loud and they're blaring and they pierce. They're easy to carry and they are used to do something like get your attention because something important is going to be said. Get your attention because a royal decree is going to be made or more significantly to the storyline of Revelation to give commands on the field of battle. You know, growing up, 
you'd hear about like all these like trumpet calls like buglers would make, there's taps, there's revelry, there's the main ones. But you ever watch a movie like Dances with Wolves or anything like that, and the cavalry's going into battle and there's always the bugler? And you're always kind of like as a kid going, this is so dorky, like why are they bringing their musical instruments into battle? Because that's your radio man. He's communicating troop movements by different calls that you can hear over the din of battle. So when you read Revelation chapter 8, that's how I want to encourage you to think of the imagery of the trumpet blasts. Heaven is issuing commands in the field of battle of what's going to occur. And this fits the storyline of Revelation because we've just had a census. God's army has just been numbered. It has just been raised up. And now we're getting this perspective of how the battle is going to take place. Let me talk to you about some more of the images here. And I always run out of time. When the Roman legions would go into battle, they would carry their standards, which is their big banners. So you would see where your, your division is, or your legion is, or, or your subgroups within that legion were. And the Roman symbol that they would put high on the standards for all people to see and rally to, like a flag or a, a, a rendezvous point, what is the animal symbol they would put on it? I bet you can guess. An eagle. I mean, you don't have to take my word for this. Watch any documentary on Netflix on the Roman Empire, and within eight minutes, you're going to see eagles going into battle. So now we have trumpet commands, and now we have eagle imagery, but who has appropriated all of this imagery? It's not Rome and their legions and their trumpet calls you need to fear because God has come on the battle scene, and the eagles are mine. The trumpet blasts are mine. And it's all in response to the way it gets set up in chapter 8. The last seal always introduces the next cycle. When the seventh seal was opened, we repeat again. And there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Attention-filled pause, simply before we see from a different vantage point what's going to happen. And I saw the seven angels who stood before God, and they were given seven trumpets. These are the legionnaires, these are the commanders, the centurions, if you will, of God's army leading forth his work. Another angel who had the golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense. Remember, incense is always prayers in the Bible. It symbolizes, just like you pray to heaven, you visually symbolize it by lighting smoke and watching it ascend to heaven. So our prayers ascend. And and in fact, Psalm 100 and something, let my prayers rise before you as incense, O Lord, the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. What What is the impact? God is hearing your cry. Prayers are not just getting on your knees and saying something formal. Prayers are your cries to God, your pleas before God, your groanings before God, whether articulated or left unarticulated. God is saying, I hear the prayers. It's ascending into my throne room. And I'm gathering them in a censer. A censer is basically like, you ever seen like Catholic and Orthodox churches, those big swingy incense pots? You know, it blows smoke everywhere. That's its point. God is hearing it. And what does God do? He takes it and hurls it down on earth. And I think it would be a mistake 
to understand that as going, I'm angry at your prayers. No, no, he's not hurling it on you. No, he is hurling it in response to you. See, Revelation does not have an idea that we're all in this together. It draws battle lines. Us and them. Those who are loyal to King Jesus and those who are loyal to any other king sitting on the throne of their life. And Revelation takes a perspective that there is a clear line between it and that God is going to act and fight on his people's behalf. So put yourself in the shoes of someone in Northeast India today and you're getting dragged out of your church as we speak and beaten before the public square just because you're a Christian. Bring yourself to China today, which is a lot more first world in its technology but you are being barred from certain goods and services and opportunities and marks are being put on your digital record so that you cannot transact, so that you cannot do life the way other people are, have certain jobs or certain apartments, or maybe even just find yourself in a black site prison. Put yourself in any culture today where this is happening and you can start to get the cry of God's people Throw your plagues upon it. Go to war, oh God. And maybe you can resonate. Or maybe you're more like Ephesus. Maybe you're more like Ephesus or Laodicea, where as a Christian, life is really, really, really comfortable for you. Life is really just, wow, I can eat, I can drink, I can be merry, I'm wealthy, my future is secure. And and maybe in there, there's a sense of warning. Have you sold out to culture? Are you doing it the world's way? What side of the battle line are you going to be on because the battle is going to rage? This is what Revelation is trying to do. Now, I'm hopelessly out of time. I'm going to land the plane today. But hopefully that's given you a sense of vision into what this storyline is doing. I'll pick up with some of this next week, a few more details that are significant, and then we'll dovetail it into chapter 10 and how it keeps it going. So thanks for coming. God bless, and uh, see you in a few minutes at church.